Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, Herstory fans. We are back for another episode of Whining About Herstory. Thank you so much for your patience while uh, Kelly was recovering and we were generally getting our technological shit together. <laughs> if you this is your first time listening, welcome to Whining About Herstory, the women's history podcast where two friends... Pair fine wine with fine ladies from history you probably haven't heard of. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And Kelly, how are you feeling? The world wants to know. I'm doing really well. I feel really good. I'm glad. Kelly and I have hung out a few times since her surgery, and I've just seen the life progressively grow in her (laughs) face. (laughs) But this is the first time we've been able to record. We tried last week, but technology, it took us an hour. I was say, we tried for an hour to try and get you guys a podcast. Yeah, and it was a fucking nightmare. And actually, we recorded an intro, and it was just me bitching about technology (laughs) for five solid minutes. And even then, it sounded like crap. So we are looking into other recording technology options. options. So if this episode doesn't sound as great as normal, bear with us. We're getting there. True stories. True stories. So, Kelly, what are we drinking today? Um, So Emily actually picked out the wine because I didn't want to leave my house because it's winter and cold. and That's okay because there was a Pokemon that I haven't caught at the (laughs) Pokestop by the liquor store. It's okay. No, seriously, I went to get coffee with the boyfriend this morning. I was like... And I see it pop up on my pokey radar, and it was like, oh, hey, we, like, do you want to drive me to the liquor store so I can get some wine? If not, it's totally fine. And he's like, yeah, no worries. So I went in and, like, stood in the aisle pretending to look for wine while I was like, I'm catching you, you little son of a bitch. <laughs> and I got it. Nice. So, what was it? Uh, it was like, Bronzong. It's basically a giant mm. bronze bell. Oh, yeah. I've seen that in the new games. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a nerd. So today we're drinking peach Moscato because apparently Emily felt like summer in the middle of our cold, bitter winter. Actually, it's not even the middle. The beginning of our cold, bitter winter. Yep. And it says, bursting with all the flavors of perfectly ripe peaches, barefoot peach Moscato is a sweet way to treat yourself. Fresh from the farm with a bright, crisp finish, it pairs perfectly with everything from artisanal cheeses to delicious desserts. And it is on the dry end of the scale. Which, I mean, I guess, I feel like we've had drier. Yeah. You know, like this is kind of where we live. It's fruity. It's refreshing. It's really easy to get down. And smells wonderful. It does. So Barefoot has this whole line of flavored Moscatos. They've got like berry. They've got apple, mango, etc. So I picked peach. Because I've had peach Moscato before and it turned out really well. Oh, yeah. Crisp strawberry, sweet peach, apple, and citrus. Those are the ones that they... Oh, and then fresh pear, floral, raspberry berry, and refreshing. Oh, yeah. They got they, lots. They have a lot of different things. I would. Ooh, there's a red cherry. We should try that. At some I would highly recommend this. But I was not really feeling up to getting back into the reds just yet. And I also didn't want to spend a ton of time at the liquor store. Right. So I, I grabbed could get lost in the liquor what store. What we know. Yep. All right. Well, oh, Kelly, that's me. You are going first today. I am. I'm bring a wonderful on, woman. Bring on the empowerment. Oh, we got a cheers. Oh yeah. Thirty six episodes, and I still don't know what the fuck we're doing. Yeah, that sounds about right. All right, where are we cheersing to? 
I don't know. Your speedy recovery, yes. your continued health. Yeah, there you go. Clink. Ooh, that was a really good one. Yeah. God, this is, I want to be tubing with a right? bunch of this I in my water bottle. That, <laughs> that sounds like a good, it's summer. It smells like summer. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's drizzling, and there's a bunch of wet snow on the ground, and every That's time gross. I shovel, nature's like, I'm going to snow again, and right. I'm getting sick of it already. Well, and it's like that heavy snow, too, and now there's going to be a layer of ice on top of it. Yep. It's not going to be fun. So, I am covering, I don't know if it's Ida or Ida. So, I'm going to go with Ida. I-D-A. Ida B. Wells? No. Oh. She's a big deal. I know. <laughs> be, you know what? If they pronounce her name Ida, I'm going to go with Ida then. Well, how, how is it spelled? I-D-A. I always thought that was Ida. So we're going with Ida. I don't know. It's Austrian. Oh, those Austrians. So I'm covering Ida Pfeiffer. So Ida Pfeiffer was born in Vienna, Austria as Ida Ryer. She had five or six brothers and was treated as one of the boys by her father. She, As a young girl, she wore a lot of boys' clothing and received the same education as her brother. Z- brothers plural <laughs> yeah lots of boys lots six of boys F- five or six i guess they didn't know she was also encouraged to participate in strenuous outdoor activities to help her develop physical strength and independence which you don't hear about that a lot no especially what year is this um she was born 1797 oh, i didn't snap i didn't say but 1797 we're going way back yeah way back her father died when she was only nine years old, at which point her mother encouraged her to take up activities and clothing more suitable for young women. Uh, she reluctantly started to wear dresses and took piano lessons. Mm. She's like, fuck this, but fine. <laughs> you know, I was listening to the Explorers podcast, which if any of you guys haven't heard it, you need to. It's so well done. It's so amazing. But they were talking about um, Clara Barton. And how she grew up and she was a big people pleaser. And so she would do all the like strenuous manly activities because people were like, whoa, look at a girl's doing that. But then the older she got, they were like, okay, this isn't cute anymore. You need to get girled up. Right. So it was this like horrible, like she couldn't win. Yeah, you hear about (laughs) that happening a lot that like when the male figure in a family like dies or leaves that the mom's like, nope. Like, you need to behave now because we need to get you married off. Right, right. This stuff that used to be cute is now disgusting. Right, exactly. She's quoted as saying in her autobiography about her childhood, I was not shy, but wild as a boy and bolder and more forward than my elder brothers. Obviously, her mom was trying to tame that. Yeah. (laughs) She had prayed for a daughter like for all the stereotypical feminine reasons. And then she got Ida and she's like, God damn it. Right. At age 17, uh, Ida fell in love with her, her piano tutor and he in love with her. They wanted to marry. However, Ida's mother forbade it as she wanted a better match for her daughter. I'm sorry. You're the one that made her take piano. Right. This is your fault. Actually, okay, so he wasn't her piano tutor. He was just her tutor in general. Oh, okay. Um, And he introduced her to a lot of contemporary explorers, and she became particularly interested at the time in Robinson Crusoe and the writings of Alexander von Humboldt. That'll be important later. Eventually, her mother did find her a match, and in 1812... 1820, 1812. Actually, that would be right in the time frame. It's not like we're saying 2012. 
1820, she married Dr. Mark Anton Pfeiffer, a lawyer in Lemberg, which is now Lviv, Ukraine. I don't know what I'm saying Lviv, right? It's L-V-I-V, Ukraine. The way we say it is Lviv. Yeah. Here you go. He was 24 years her senior. Oh, and a no. wi- And a widower widow, with a grown-up son. Like her age? Probably. Ew! It doesn't say, but that's my guess. Ugh. The couple left for Lemberg a week after their wedding, and Dr. Pfeiffer was soon forced to resign after uncovering corruption among senior government officials. And he subsequently found it difficult to regain employment. In order to support her family, Ida moved back and forth between Vienna and Lemberg. She gave drawing and music lessons and borrowed money for her brothers. So From her brothers, sorry. So he found out the government was corrupt and they were like, fuck you, dude. And just kind of he fell from grace? Yeah, basically. Okay. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, it does. It does suck. A lot. Sucks like a vacuum. Um, so like I said, she was giving lessons and when that didn't meet their needs, she asked, she asked her brothers, particularly for help financing her son's schooling. Mm-hmm. Um, her mother died in 1831 and left her a small inheritance, which Ida used for living expenses and the rest of the boys' educations. In 1835, the five were separated. There's- didn't get along anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to find things in common with someone who's 20 plus years right. your senior, who could be your father, exactly. and whose son is your age. So I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. I'm making that up, but I just assume. So by that time, you know, her sons had grown up a bit. And by um, 1835, or no, 1835 is when they divorced. By 1842, both sons had established homes of their own. And were, were settled into their lives. And so Ida decided to travel because she was finally free of family applications. Sweet. Right? Nothing this noise. Right. And she, once she got into like Robinson Crusoe, that was her dream is like to travel. Like she mm-hmm. got introduced to these explorers and she was like, that sounds let's cool. Let's do this. So another quote of hers that she wrote in one of her books was, when I when I was but a little child, I had already a strong desire to see the world. Whenever I met a traveling carriage, I would stop involuntarily and gaze at it until after it had disappeared. I used even to envy Postilion, for I thought he might, might have accomplished the whole long journey. So she's super into the whole explorer. Oh, and- yeah. She wanted to be. You know, I remember being a kid and thinking, like, that would be the coolest thing right. in the world. And now it just sounds like a logistical nightmare. Night- oh, yeah. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. Especially being on a ship. The fact that anyone made it to America who already <laughs> wasn't here, I'm like, that was just right magical. Right. Like, there is no way any of that should have been possible. That's funny. So in 1842, she traveled along the Danube River to Istanbul. From there, she decided to continue to Jerusalem, stopping in Gallipoli, Cimmerina, Rhodes, Cyprus, Beirut, Caesarea, and Jaffa. I know like half of those. Bunch of cool exotic places that we don't know the pronunciations of. So after doing all that, she returned to Beirut and sailed for Egypt. There, she visited Alexandria, Cairo, and the Red Sea before returning home via Rome, among among those she met on this trip was landscape painter 
Hubert Sattler, the British artist William Henry Bartlett, and a bohemian botanist, Count Frederick von Birchtold. All of these people sound not real. Right. Like, <laughs> no. like, did she write them? Is that her thing? She wrote this Maybe. adventure book and she's like, I totally did this. And everyone's like, no. Uh, she did publish an anonymous account of her her journey. Um, I'm not going to try to pronounce the title in Austrian. Austrian. Um, in English, it's A Women's Trip to the Holy Land. Ooh. It was in two volumes and published in 1944. Wow, that seems really late. So I maybe it was republished in 1944. I was going to say, she is super old. Yeah, no. In return, she received 700 guilders to fund her next trip. So they actually were like, hey, yeah, go on another trip. You're doing cool shit, lady. Right? We see you. The book was an instant success, and it went through three editions and was translated into Czech in 1846 and English in 1852. So, nice. Yeah, people liked her book. So in 1845, she set out for on her next trip and went to Scandinavia and Iceland. In preparation, she studied English and Danish, as well as how to preserve natural specimens and take daguerreotypes, which is um, it's their their photographic process at the time. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it was like the first type of photographic process. So she learned she learned how to do that. I um, love that you knew I was going to ask. Yeah, don't worry. I got this. Because I had to look it up. Can you use it in a sentence, please? <laughs> I just did. Can you use it in a definition, <laughs> please? <laughs> the adventure began on April 10th, 1845. She traveled to Vien- from Vienna to Copenhagen, then boarded the Johan on the 4th of May, reaching... I'm going to be... This is going to be terrible because it's either Sw- Swedish, Finnish, Danish, or Denmark. We're Minnesotans. Uh, we should know better. Half narf hoyor. Yep. Half narf hoyor. I'm really sorry. <laughs> On the you... southwest coast of Iceland. So it's Icelandic. Okay. <laughs> if you say it with enough gusto. Yeah, I should just go for it. Perf-nerf-er. I do know this one. She then rode to Reykjavik. Ah, I know that one. <laughs> On horseback and toured the geothermal area of Krasjuvik. She proceeded to visit the Golden Falls and climb the volcano Mount Hekla. After her return to Denmark, she took a small steamer north to Gothenburg, Sweden, and from there went further north to Norway. Jeez. Yep. She came back to Vienna on October 4th, 1845. So that's April, May, June, July, August, September, October. So six months. She was there six months. All of that in six months. Good grief. I bet she did it all in heels and a skirt. (laughs) Probably not. She probably dressed like a man. (laughs) She published her journal of her trip the following year. Uh, again, not going to say the Austrian translation. Trip to Scandinavia North and the island of Iceland. It's honestly more respectful if we it really just is. say it in English. <laughs> English translations of the book appeared in Britain and the U.S. in 1852. That's cool. Jeez. So in 1846, Ida decided to start a journey around the world. She visited Brazil and Chile and other countries of South America, Tahiti, China, India, Persia, Asia Minor, and Greece, returning to Vienna in 1848. So two years. She took two years and went around the world. So over 180 days. Or no, yeah. 80 days. Yes. Is that the book? Around Do the world I know in 80 things? days. Yeah, it's 80 days. <laughs> um, so this one she she published again was a women, A Woman's Journey Around the World. So this is how she did it. She boarded the Danish brig, the Caroline, sailing southwest from Hamburg onto the Atlantic Ocean, across the equator, and entering into the harbor of Rio de Janeiro. 
Um, she traveled up the Macau River to Nova Friburgo in southeast Brazil and ventured deep into the forest, accompanied only by a single servant. Jeez. Upon her return to Rio, she booked a spot on the English uh, bar- Barquet John Renwick and set off for Chile, arriving in Valparaiso on the 2nd of March. She then sailed to the island of Tahiti before disembarking in Macau on the e- coast of China on July 9th. Can, do you mind if I interrupt for just a second? No. Okay. So you hear about these explorers traveling like with servants or even just one servant. And I'm always like, the servant made the journey too and right. probably had a harder time because they were carrying everything. Yeah, I don't know. They don't talk about who it is. Because no one cares about the servants. Right. Probably. For the next two months, she visited temples and villages in Hong Kong, went on hunting excursions in Singapore, toured Colombo and Kandy, inquired about Bengali traditions in Calcutta, and visited the holy city of Benares. From Delhi, she arranged a bullock cart to Bombay under the adver- advisement of Austrian scholar Alois Sprenger, passing through H- Hyderabad and Dalatabad Fort and Elora Caves. So that sounds fun. You are so ambitious with this story and the pronunciations. I'm proud of you. Um, So from there, she left Bombay for Baghdad and then part of the Ottoman Empire. That's how old you know this is. It's still the Ottoman Empire. Isn't the Ottoman Empire not like that? It's like modern day Turkey. Yeah, but it's. Isn't it one of those things we think as being super ancient, but relatively it's not. like maybe it was around obviously during the yeah. revolution, the yeah. American Revolution. Exactly. And then some. That's true. So while exploring the ruins of the ancient city of Tesh Tesafan, she encountered Prince Aman Kwali Mirza of the Quahar dynasty. Which is that's pretty cool. She then proceeded to tour archaeological sites in Babylon, Barsippa, and Nineveh. Facilitated by the British resident Henry Creswick Rawlinson, I actually know that name, and Hormuz Rasim, the British vice consul at, at Mosul. So, like, she's actually having, like, all these people help her, which is kind of yeah. cool. Man, like, how, how do you do this? Like, she basically, she didn't have any fam- familial obligations Yeah, she's anymore. like, I'm just going to go travel. I'm like, like, we see it all the time in these stories. Someone's like... I'm going to do this. And then they do it. And I'm like, but how? Right. Especially since her family wasn't like rich. Yeah. Like she, like she was borrowing so money I don't from know. her family. What the hell? Yeah. So then during the month of Ramadan, she visited local homes in Tabriz, the capital of Azerbaijan, and was presented to the vice regent Baham Mirza. In August, she set out for Nakhchivna, bordering Armenia, and soon joined a caravan headed to Basili, the capital of Georgia. She then crossed the Black Sea into the Russian Empire. Good and then grief. back home. And she's meeting all these like wealthy, powerful oh, people. Oh yeah, right. It's insane. And so that, like I said, that took two years. And she published a woman's journey around the world in three volumes. Well, so, yeah, she did yep. a fuck ton. Um, so she wrote it in 1950. The English translation appeared in 1951, followed by Dutch in 52, French in 58, and Russian in 67. So like that one got translated. In all All the languages. (laughs) So, after her first trip around the world, she decided to go again. Because why not? Yeah. So, to fund her next expedition, 
Ida sold 300 guilders worth of specimens to the Royal Museum of Vienna that she had collected on her last trip. Oh. So that's cool. I wonder if that would be considered, though, like, cultural theft nowadays. I mean, it depends on what the specimens were. Like, I mean, if it was, like, leaf pressings and, you know, stuff like that, maybe not. Plus, if she was just taking photographs. It's hard to know. But, yeah, like, I know there's a lot of, like, ancient Egyptian stuff that got taken. And now they're like, hey, we want our shit back. And African artifacts. And then, like, France and Britain are like, well, we don't think you can take care of them. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. they were easily stolen by us, which proves you're the irresponsible (laughs) ones. Exactly. Good grief. That's like taking a kid's toy and then being like well i just took it from you right it's my toy now clearly you're not responsible enough to handle it it's like (laughs) you had a bunch of guns (laughs) what the fuck right oh yeah that's a big controversy especially the egyptian ones have been a big controversy for oh yeah a long time so yeah she sold her museum specimens to the royal museum of vienna and then carl von schreiber's who was the director of the Viennese Natural History Collection, um, along with an Austrian archaeologist named Joseph von Arneth, applied for government funding on her behalf on the grounds that she had proven herself skilled at procuring rare specimens from far corners of the world. She was awarded the funding, I guess, and she was awarded 1,500 guilders. Nice. So that's that's a decent chunk of change. That's any amount of modern money. Right. $20 billion. I know I should have looked it up, but In I didn't. In modern money. In modern money. Yes. Um, Inflation so, is crazy. So she finished her verse journey around the world in 1850, and she started her second one in 1851. This time, she set off to Berlin right away. So she went from Vienna to Berlin, where she was met with an enthusiastic odyssey. Audience among among them the Prussian explorer Alexander von Humboldt, whose writings she was fond of as a child. Oh snap! Yeah, it's like meeting. Your she was hero. really excited. Yeah, so and she your hero that was like, that was her childhood hero. She was so she was really excited. I bet she like fangirled super hard. He's like, wow, what you're doing is really incredible, and she's just right. Um, so maybe for, she just cried. Probably like I that's do what I would have done. People. I haven't really met any famous people. When I met Dessa, I cried. Yeah. Oh, that's true. I've met Dessa. Dessa, if you're listening, I was that one chick in Duluth who just burst into tears. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm so sorry. Um, so for those who don't know, Alexander von Humboldt um, did a lot of travels to America and inspired a number of scientists and naturalists, including Charles Darwin, Henry David Thoreau, John Muir, and Ernest Haeckel. So like I recognize a few of those names. Yeah. So he was he was a really big explorer that kind of inspired other people to do stuff, including Ida. So Ida was welcomed by German cartographer Karl Ritter, who was at the time the professor of geography at the University of Berlin, and she would continue to collaborate with him even after departing Berlin. Um so from Berlin she went to Hamburg and from Hamburg she went to London, um meeting with Richard Owen who was an outspoken critic of Darwin. So that sounds interesting. And then she also met with Augustus Peterman for his expertise on Africa and William Bartlett, who's going to who will be her traveling companion to Jerusalem or was her traveling companion to Jerusalem her last trip. Okay. So like, again, she went here. She met a whole bunch of people, particularly August Peterman, because she this trip she planned to go to Africa. So she's like, I want his insight because he's been there. Right. You know, so. On May 1851, Pfeiffer departed, Ida, 
I mean, Pfeiffer still works, but Ida departed from Cape Town or for Cape Town, South Africa, and to arrived on August 11th. Sharks. So the, she left on May 27th and okay. arrived on August 11th to get to Cape Town. Yes, that is a long ass boat ride. Jesus Christ. Here's the thing seriously, travel back then oh, shouldn't have, have even been no, possible. Yeah, we were just talking about it. It's magical. Like, what the hell? Right. So she arrived on August 11th and soon sent a box of specimens back um, to the curator of the Natural History Museum in Vienna. She had intended to penetrate deeper into Africa, but her hopes proved impractical in light of the overwhelming expenses. I'm guessing, yeah, because people probably hadn't really done that yet. So you'd have to hire like guides and like bushwhackers and servants. Yeah. So she ended up not going as far into Africa as she desired. It takes at least four dudes to get to use one of those right sitting god what are they called i don't remember but i know what you're talking about they like carry them around yeah yeah so when she couldn't go into africa she proceeded across the indian ocean to the malay archipelago spending two weeks in singapore where she collected a new a new species of mole cricket that's interesting mole cricket yeah i don't know what a mole cricket is it's a cricket that burrows underground and is covered in fur no, it kind of looks like a cockroach with its cricket. Ew. Yeah. So in addition to that, she also f- sent fish, seaweed, and crustaceans that she found back as well. She spent eight months on the Sunda Islands, accompanied by Captain John Brooke, the nephew and heir to Sir James Brooke. I don't know who that is. Big shot. Yep. She visited the Dayaks of Borneo and became one of the first explorers to report on the traditions of the, the Bataks in Sumatra. So I'm guessing that's like a native tribe. Yeah. Um, along the way, she encountered Sultan Abdul Rashid Muhammad Jamal Undin. Just ran into him. Yep. In the woods or something. Of the Principality of Sintang. Yeah. I don't know. They they were just like hanging out in the same market. Oh, my God. Are you the Sultan? Oh, yeah. Cool yeah. Right. You. Exactly. I'm she- just out for my morning stroll amongst the commoners. Yeah. Right. She also ran into renowned ichthyologist. Fish studier. Fish studier, yep. Dr. Peter Bleeker in Batavia and Colonel Von Hart at, oh Jesus, Batangi, which is the third largest city in uh, West Sumatra. And yet we still again, don't know how well, to say Well, and the it. thing is, it's like she's meeting, again, she's just meeting all these people. Okay, I maybe it's just like the way the story has been recounted, but it sounds like she just happens to run into all these right? notable and, people. And yeah, maybe it was she was like, "Oh, I'm going to this place. I'm going to go and visit this person." Yeah, is my she, guess. Like, there's no way she's just bumping right? into all these. So that's how like people. all the stories made it sound. Of course, she just ran into so and so. This was before Facebook, and you couldn't post your location and coordinates. Right? I know it's weird. She was granted permission to enter the territories of local villages where she observed dance performances, acquired a finely crafted Tungal Panaluan, which is a magic staff used by shamans of the Batak people. Oh, shit. Yep. And accumulated a collection of valuable specimens, including ray-finned fish and checker barb, which are both types of fish. Oh, okay. I was like, what's checker barb? I immediately imagine a checkers board with like like barbed wire around it. It's a really small fish, um, but yeah, it kind of has a checkerboard pattern on its skin. Cool. I looked up a picture of it. On so in July, she sailed across. She then left and sailed across the Pacific to North America. She arrived on the west coast of the United States during the California Gold Rush. 
and visited Sacramento, Marysville, Crescent City, and Santa, Santa Clara, and San Jose before heading south to Central America. Did she run into vampires? No. Oh. That would have been exciting. I just saw The Lost Boys last month. So I love that movie. I'm thinking of vampires. Right? After stops in New Grada in Peru, she, t- she returned to Guayaquil, the main port of Ecuador. In May, she boarded a steamer bound for New Orleans, where she stayed for three weeks, and then toured the Great Lakes region. Woot, woot. Oh, yay! In her journal, she describes visits to American circuses, theaters, private girls' schools, the Manhattan Detention Complex. Oh, God. As well as encounters with the eminent short story writer, Washington Irving, the celebrated surgeon, John Collins Warren, and the Swiss-American biologist, Louis Agassi. Okay, so the whole time she's traveling to these places that I feel you and I consider very exotic, and then the second she gets to America, I'm like, really? Like, I mean, I'm sure there was cool stuff going on. You know, obviously we had a circus in prison. I like, yeah, that she went to the Manhattan (laughs) Detention Complex. I'm getting shaman staffs from these people, but in America, I'm just checking out your prisons, because apparently that's what you're known for. That's what we're known for. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Right. So after her tour of America, she went back to Vienna um, and completed her narrative this time called My Second Trip Around the World. (laughs) You know, she doesn't, she doesn't, there's no bullshit. She's just like, this is what I did. Just in case you didn't hear about the first one. So she published that in 1856 and the English translation came out in the same year. They were on top of it. They were waiting. Um, the Dutch also came out the same year, French a year later, Polish in 1860, Russian in 76, and Malay. So, I mean, it went back to the country she came from in 77. You know, I was going to ask because every language her books are getting translated into are not the languages of the places right. she's writing about. It's all for the Westerners. Yeah. The book was very, very well received in Austria and German newspapers. The English Edinburgh Edinburgh Review and the American Literary Magazine Criterion also gave it high marks. Damn. Yeah. So, after doing a trip around the world, she took two years off. It doesn't really say what she did. I assume, like, visited her (laughs) family or something. I don't know. I like to think she still traveled, but it was just kind of... Her low own key. schedule, yeah. low key. She's not sending anything back. She's doing it purely for pleasure. Right. I want to check out this place called Hawaii. That place sounds We're like it's got there, it going yeah. on. So in May of 1857, Ida set out to explore Madagascar. Her first stop was back in Cape Town, South Africa, where Which she encountered where months. she encountered the French civil engineer slave trader Joseph Francois Lambert. Unbeknownst to Ida, Lambert had joined. Jean Laborde and a few other Europeans in a plot to replace Rana Valana, the queen of Madagascar, <gasps> with the more moderate crown prince Rokoto, who who is the fu- who was the future king of like spoilers. Um, Ida unwittingly became part of the conspiracy and was expelled from Madagascar in July of 1957 no! after the queen discovered the attempted coup. God damn it, Ida. Right. You know how that story should have gone? Ida discovered their plot, went to the queen, is like, bitch, I got right. you. Let's do she's, this. And she killed everyone. Rana Valana um, is actually on my list, but she's she, I should have covered her for Halloween. She's a little scary. <laughs> Well, she's a little intense. That's because everyone's trying to overthrow right. her because she's a woman. 
Yeah, that's probably That's true. what I'm saying. During Ida's passage from the capital and, and to Navaria to the coastal port of departure, she unfortunately contracted a disease, likely malaria, and never fully recovered. No. She, sh- she suffered through spells of fever on the ship and left for London on the 10th of March. She traveled to Hamburg and was struck by a renewed outbreak of vomiting and diarrhea. Oh, my God. That sucks. She did make it home. However, Ida Pfeiffer died in Vienna on October 27th, 1858, in the home of her brother, Carl Rayer. That sucks. You know what, though? That's, like, one of my fears. Like, I get she was on a ship and it's different. Yeah. But do you ever worry that oh, yeah. you're going to be trapped in a car oh, yeah. on a highway, middle of nowhere, and, like, it just hits yeah. you? Like, you have to yeah. take a oh, ship yeah. really bad yeah. and there's nowhere to go but a cornfield. Yeah, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to do that. You have to make that choice. A travelogue describing her final voyage called The Trip to Madagascar was published in 1861, so uh, three years after she died. It was published in two volumes and included a biography written by her son, Oscar. Aww. Her son that she probably never saw except for those two years where she was taking a break. Yeah, exactly. So things she influenced, I guess I'm going to, is my title. During her travels, Ida collected plants, insects, mollusks, marine life, and mineral specimens. Oh, my God. Many were sold. I know. I'm trying to ignore it. (laughs) We have a puppy clawing at the door because she is so fascinated and empowered right right now. She's like, I want to learn. I need to know. Um, So many of the specimens were sold to a museum in Berlin or the British Museum. Some of the specimens she collected um, were the orb weaver spider of the freshwater prawn, snails, and sh- soft-shell turtles from Ambon and Surum and Maluku. So, like, these were things that they never saw before. Right. Have you ever... So, when I was uh, in Scotland, we toured a castle. Yeah. And they had plates on display that had illustrations of African animals. But they they were all, like, a little bit off. Like Oh, because uh, it was, like... People had described them, and then they made a plate out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they also kind of embellished, too, to make it sound cooler. So, like, a rhino had, like, a curled horn. That's interesting. there was all this other weird shit. Like, rhinos looked fully armored. Yeah. That's kind of cool, though. Yeah. So, the Natural History Museum in Vienna purchased 721 specimens from Ida's collection in Madagascar. Good grief. Including nine mammals, 14 birds... 23 reptiles, 3 crustaceans, 15 mollusks, 10 species of spiders, and 105 species of insects. I wonder how that, like, collection and documentation process went. Like, here's my other thing. She's shipping these specimens back. I can't even get something from Amazon without it being, like, busted Right, to shit. I know. But she's sending specimens on boat, and it takes 8,000 years to get there? Yeah. The past is wild! I know. So, I so legacy. Ida's referenced as Madame Pfeiffer in, da- uh, what's his full name? Henry David Thoreau's book called Walden, which is about living oh, in the woods. Oh, yeah. Um, and he talks about her and how she wore more civilized clothing the closer she got to her homeland. There's actually like a great picture of her like in like trousers with a skirt over it and like this big jacket going out to collect specimens. I'll, like it's a drawing, but it's very interesting. I'll post it on the blog. Um, Alfred Wallace, who I think I mentioned before, was um, a British explorer and naturalist and all that. Um, 
frequently mentioned Ida in his letters to um, his sister and colleagues. In fact, um, he would go on to visit many of the same places she did after she did. So that's kind of cool. Like she's she like, he's awesome. Away. Yeah, exactly. Um, Charles Darwin also cited her in his Descent of Man, remarking that in Java, a yellow, not a white girl, is considered, according to Madame Pfeiffer, a beauty. Aww. And then she also, let's see. In 1892, the Viennese Society for Further Education of Women transferred Ida's remains to a place of honor in the Vienna Central Cemetery. She was the first woman to be admitted to the Rose of Honor dead. So that's really sweet. In 2000, a uh, street in Munich was renamed Ida Pfeiffer Street. In 2018, the University of Vienna established the Ida Pfeiffer Professorship to the Faculty of Earth Sciences, Geography, and Astronomy. You know, it's it's so crazy. And then obviously her books are still around. The the whole explorer, like that was a profession you could have back in the day. Yeah, and that's and- what she was. She was a stay-at-home mom and then an explorer. Yeah, and th- that's just fascinating to me. And she was like, yeah, I'm just going to go do it. Like, here's the thing. So many of these stories, like, there are logistics and crazy bullshit that we don't hear about. There must have been a lot to her being like, okay, I'm going to become an explorer and then doing it. Like, you have right. to set that up. It's like, oh, we're going to start a podcast. We did, but there was a lot of bullshit, like, that went into us starting it and continuing it. Right. As and- you can tell by our technological yeah, issues. Right. God damn it. There is one thing I mentioned that. Some people say that she contracted the malaria or whatever in, like, prison. Like, that she was imprisoned by the Queen of Madagascar. Oh, for being a part of the yeah, plot. Yeah, for being a part of that her. plot. But it's very, like, iffy. Like, some, some people say that they just got kicked out. Some people say that they got, like, arrested and then kicked out. So I just went with kicked out. Because eventually they got kicked out. Yeah. So yeah, there that, must have that's... been some level of formal process to it, whether right. the queen just saying GTFO or like Off arresting with their them heads. and then saying GTFO. Right, exactly. <laughs> so that that's the life of Ida Pfeiffer. Wow, that was really cool. I I love the whole just that she's traveling around everywhere. Like I I feel like us as Americans, I mean statistically, Americans oh, yeah. don't travel no. a lot. We stay within the country. Now, granted. It's fucking massive, and there's a lot to see here that, like, we're never going to see. We're probably never going to get to this, that, or the other thing. But the whole idea of just, like, I'm going to pick up, I'm going to go all these foreign places, and especially, like, there was no Trivago. There was no Travelocity to, like, plan her Mm. trip or do research on, like, what do I need to be concerned about? What are the cultural norms there? What do I need to do or avoid? Like, Yeah. And she did have some of the same problems that you'll see with, like, that you see with other explorers, that she did feel herself slightly superior to some of the indigenous people. Yeah. Because she was, you know, an Eastern Christian, and they were... It actually says somewhere that she thought they were savages. And I'm like, I'm just gonna... Well, That's it's sad, but it happens. Like, yeah, because you come from this place, and you're like, "Wow, even our poor people don't act like that." Like, yeah. so clearly they're savages. But I, I think it's cool that even though she went out there, she saw that she thought that she's like, "No, I'm still gonna go and explore and go to villages and like watch their dances and get some magic stick and you know, like all this stuff." And you know what's cool? Like, 
the more you travel and the more you expose yourself to other cultures, the less bigoted and judgmental you just inherently become. Yeah. And so I, her street head canon, I'm totally projecting on her. I like to think she grew. She started that way and then. I like to think she had an appreciation regardless of her like ingrained prejudices that she was able to appreciate what was around her. Her street stamp of approval. Her street stamp of approval. She wasn't. Totally she wasn't a totally a bigoted. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, I am going to talk about another super badass lady. And we are, well, actually, by the time this comes out, it'll be December. But this was December meant for November. 2nd. But this is another vet lady oh, nice. for November. So I had a theme, apparently. Apparently. I tried not to, but it happened. I should have done my other lady first then, because my other lady is connected to the army. Nice. I'm excited to hear about her next week. Yeah, it'll be fun. All right. So I am covering Ludmila Pavlichenko. Oh, yeah. We both went for the pronunciations this year. I this time. practiced this name. And honestly, one of the nice things about when we have women with hard to pronounce names, like whenever I write it, I'll either say it out loud or oh, yeah. say it yep, in my head Yep, that's exactly practice. what I do. So uh, her, she's also known as the Lady of Death. Dun dun dun! Atmosphere fading to war-torn Europe. <laughs> Not just yet. Okay, so Ludmila was born in Bila Cirkva in what is now modern-day Ukraine, but at the time it was part of the Russian Empire. Uh, she was born on July 12, 1916. So we're not going as far back as you, no, but it was a different time. At 14 years old, she moved to Kiev with her family. Her mother was a school teacher and her father worked in a factory in St. Petersburg. Cue the St. Petersburg yep, song from exa- Anastasia. That's exactly what popped into my head. <laughs> this is literally what I thought of when I was that's writing funny. these notes. Have you heard? There's that a rumor, rumor in St. Petersburg. Petersburg. Have you heard? Lumila's gonna kill your ass. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Growing up, Lumila described herself as a tomboy. She enjoyed athletics and competition, and she that, especially that sounds familiar enjoyed shooting. And she joined a local shooting club to outshine a neighbor boy who had been bragging about his own shooting skills. So this kid, I think I read this story and then didn't do her for some reason. You have probably heard her story. I've I've read about her in the past, but I also heard about her on Drunk History. Ah. Shout out Drunk History, Um, and it's a bonkers story. But so basically, this neighbor kid's like, "Nee nee nee, I can shoot better than you," and she's like. I will bury you. (laughs) (laughs) In my better shooting skills. Yes. Quote, I set out to show that a girl could do just as well as him. So I practiced a lot. Like, spite motivates you like nothing Nothing else. Nothing else, yeah. It's like the whole hell hath no fury like a woman scorned thing. Hell hath no fury like a woman who's getting real sick of little (laughs) Billy down the street being a prick. (laughs) Ludmila became a skilled sharpshooter and earned a variety of awards and certificates, including the Voroshilov Sharpshooter Badge. Nice. I really hope every time she went home, she would go to Billy and be like, look what I got, motherfucker. What's up, bitch? <laughs> oh, oh, did you get your badge today? Oh, you didn't? That's so sad. Because I did. Yeah, right. She was just really spiteful about it. That would it. have been me. Oh, yeah. 
Ludmila's life was pretty normal. She had a day job as a grinder at the Kiev Arsenal factory and attended school at night. In 1932, at 16 years old, Ludmila married Dr. Alexei Pavlichenko, and they had a son together. Aww. However, they divorced yep. pretty quickly because he was relationships... Probably, he was probably also significantly older than her yeah like to be a doctor yeah that's what i was thinking yeah so just remember kids relationships when you're 16 probably won't last (laughs) so don't make any decisions that you might regret i'm not saying don't enjoy it your frontal lobe has not fully developed yet you can't process love yeah i'm just saying like chill think rationally think with your head not your parts yes (laughs) Ludmila decided to pursue her education and enrolled at Kiev University in 1937 studying history with the goal of becoming a scholar and teacher because she is intellectual as fuck. Good. She continued- Maybe that's why she left him. Maybe she's like, no, fuck you. I want I want to go to school. Yeah. And he was like, but I'm a doctor. And she's like, but, 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 but I don't care. Right. She continued her athletic pursuits, competing as a sprinter and a pole vaulter. That's cool. She also honed her skills as a marksman, enrolling in an elite sniping school. Wow. I'm yeah. surprised they let her in. Well, there was some compulsory, like, military education that uh, Soviet citizens were required to have, but she specifically, like, went to this sniping That's super school. Cool. Uh, however... Ludmila's life was about to have a bomb dropped on it. Literally. In 1941, the Nazis began their invasion of the Soviet Soviet Union and bombed Kiev University where where Ludmila was in her fourth year. She is about to graduate. I would be so mad. And then they were like, oh, well, we can't have classes so you don't get your degree. And she's like, I incurred all the student loan for nothing? Ugh. So not having any of that shit, 25-year-old Ludmila was one of the first in line at the army recruiter's office. Right? She's like, remember how I, like, you know, like, beat the shit out of little Billy with my sniping skills? <laughs> I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm going to do that to the German. You make it sound like she sniped him from her own rooftop. <laughs> He's coming back from soccer practice. She's like, you little shit. No, that's fucking horrifying. <laughs> that's not how I meant it. That just shows you sniping awards. Yes. Well, actually, it's funny that you mentioned that. So she was demanding to put her sharpshoot skills to use. Initially, the recruiter tried to persuade her to go into nursing or work in a factory to support the war effort. While both would have been honorable paths, Lumila knew she ha- had a very particular set of skills. Skills she had acquired over a long career. Skills that would make her a nightmare for Nazis. Shout out taken. (laughs) To convince the recruiter, Ludmila presented her various certificates and awards that attested to her skill. The recruiter relented and she was assigned to the Ren Army's 25th Rifle Division and stationed in Odessa, part of the Ukrainian SSR. Joining the ranks of about 2,000 other female snipers in the Red Army, which oh, that wow. blew my mind. Yeah. I was well, like, what? I remember some of the other people we've covered, like my tank lady and stuff. Like, they were like, Russia, you know, was finally like, fine, we'll let women help us. Yeah, because they were like, oh, fuck, this just got real. Yeah. So I would love to do more research in the future about female snipers in the Red Army. Right. I've... Or really just women in the Russian military. Well, because, like... okay, we've done... 
Tank. The Fighting Girlfriend. Yep. Uh, we're doing Ludmila Pavlichenko. We did The Night Witches. And, but all of those women had to be like, fucking let us in. Like, right. They had to the fight. one person was like, I'm going to buy my own tank. Yes. <laughs> Gosh. And then for the Night Witches, this like high profile female pilot wrote to Stalin and was like, dude, we're doing this. And he was like, okay, I'm okay. not messing with yeah, you. Right. Like, you're like, fine. Please don't bomb me. <laughs> <laughs> now, just because Ludmila was in the rifle division didn't actually mean she would get a rifle. It's very misleading. False advertising. Due to a weapon shortage and the fact that she was a woman, cough, cough. Ludmila was only given a frag grenade and was relegated to digging trenches. Oh, I would be so pissed off. Here's the thing. You use a frag grenade once. Oh, yeah. Like. You're either getting away or you're dead. Yeah. She recalled how, quote, it was very frustrating to have to observe the course of battle with just a grenade in one's hand. Especially, I'm sure, because she's like, God damn it, I shoot better than you give me your goddamn gun. Right? Like, (laughs) give me a gun. One day, one of Lumila's comrades was injured in battle and handed her his Mosin Nagant bolt-action rifle because he was too injured to use it. Yes. Ludmila underwent her, quote, baptism by fire, as she called it, when she used the rifle to make her first two kills. This impressed her comrades and commanding officers, and Ludmila would not be out without a rifle again. They were like, this chick needs a gun always 24 7 you need to sleep with that gun yeah i'm sure she did oh i'm sure they all did ludmila wasn't just accurate she was creative she would rig mannequins as decoys and plant strips of cloth to flutter in the wind to distract the enemy ludmila even weaponized the weather using the rain to muffle her gunfire as she hunted nazis wow yeah Her success made her a valuable target. In one instance, Ludmila was trying to find a perch in a tree when she was spotted and fired upon. The shot missed, but Ludmila pretended to be hit and dropped out of the tree, falling 12 feet to the ground. She knew that if she moved, the enemy would know she was alive and fire again. So Ludmila lay there for hours until night fell and she made her escape. Wow. Metal. Yeah. One of the most- my luck, I would be like- right you sneeze i sneeze you get fucking hay fever from the leaves in the tree you're you're suddenly your lunch doesn't agree with you (laughs) (laughs) oh my god that's how i die in battle that's a hundred percent how it would happen oh my god Okay. No, I'd be in the tank and be like, guys, guys, this <laughs> you is need happening. To stop the tank. <laughs> is there a cornfield nearby? <laughs> oh my god. Do you remember that time we were driving back from the cities oh. and I was really sick and I had to go into the gas station yeah. and throw up in yes. my Renaissance costume? Yes, I do. That's yeah. Oh, uh, that was one of my low moments in my life. Ludmila. Oh no. One of the most notable stories from Ludmila's service is when she found herself in a duel with another sniper. Ludmila was on a solo assignment when she spotted a helmet among some rustling brush. An easy target. Too easy. Something didn't feel right. A bullet whizzed by her, barely missing. Ludmila quickly hid in a thorny briar bush and waited. 
Sniper duels could go on for days, and Lumila had no food, no armor, and no shelter, unless you count a bunch of thorns that dug into her skin every time she breathed. Right. I don't count that. Any movement could give her position away to the enemy sniper, and senseless firing could also give away her position. So Ludmila waited until the enemy sniper made a mistake. Then she fired. Throughout her career, Ludmila would engage in several duels and kill 36 snipers. Wow. And so, like, these interactions could go on for days. Just two people waiting for the other person to give Mess away up. their position. Yeah. That's yeah. insane. And I, I saw a video where it said that this particular duel went out for several hours, but others could go on for days. Yeah. I'm it not depends patient. on how good the snipers are. Yeah. I'm not patient enough. I can't. I can't do it. Again, I'd probably get gas and get shot. <laughs> what a crappy yeah, way would, to die. Yeah, right. I would cough or something. In her own words, quote, Sniping is dangerous because we are hunted as well as hunters. The presence of a sniper can demoralize troops and everything is done to get rid of him with concentrated fare from all arms, even artillery, with his exact posi- when his exact position is known or by setting snipers off on their own against him. A considerable part of my action has consisted of duels with enemy snipers. So snipers are all high-value targets because they will not only kill you, but they mess with your head. Because literally at any point, you could just be dead. Right, yeah, you you don't know. no idea where it came from. There's no firing back. So it was really important to take out each other's snipers. Ludmila would continue to climb the ranks and prove to be a brave leader. In one battle, her senior commanders were killed, and despite being wounded herself, Ludmila took command of the remaining soldiers. One soldier yelled, Cowards! Look at this woman! Pavlichenko has the balls of a man! Or maybe she had ovaries and that was also really badass. Right. But I get the sentiment. In two and a half months defending Odessa from the Nazis, Ludmila recorded... 187 kills. Whoa. During Lumila's service, she met fellow sniper Alexei Kitsenko. Can you imagine what that pillow talk was like? Because they were into each other. Uh, they did get married. Aww. Sadly. Alexei yeah. was wounded by a mortar shell. Ludmila tried to save him by dragging him off the battlefield, but he died a few days later in a hospital. Her first husband was an old doctor, and then her second husband died in front of her. And this sucks. As the war wore on, it only took more and more from Ludmila. Odessa, where Ludmila was stationed, fell to the control of the Romanians who were fighting on the side of the Axis powers. Because of this, her unit was withdrawn and moved to Sevastopol. Sevastopol. I should have looked that up which is located on the Crimean Peninsula. There she served for eight months in what is now known as the siege, or defense, depending on what side you're on, of Sevastopol. Soviet forces defended Sevastopol against German and Romanian forces. I keep wanting to say Romanian for some reason. You're just weird. I There's something wrong with my brain. Anyway. Sevastopol was the final objective of Operation Barbosa, the Nazis' planned invasion of the Soviet Union, that had not yet fell. So this was the last stand. And here, here's the thing. I know that the Nazis' invasion of the Soviet Union 
failed. But throughout this story, they're like, no, they kind of took everything. And this was like the last stand. So it yeah. makes it sound a lot more successful and makes well, me want to do winter. more reading. <laughs> Axe's forces bombarded the city by land, air, and sea. It was bloody. And after having lost comrades and her husband, Ludmila's sniping style became more twisted. It wasn't that she killed more people. It was how she did it. Ludmila began aiming for the legs of enemy targets. This would lure out rescuers who she would then take out. So it's getting sadistic and dark and really not fun. Like they're Nazis right. and I'm not like, oh, well, but nice like clearly Nazi. something's not right in her head. She's getting darker. And there's actually there's this video by um oh fuck, what's his name? Lindy Beige. He is a big historian yeah. on YouTube. And he does this whole video about how long is a soldier effective because they do really well, really well, and then they just get burnt out and then they stop being effective. And it, Or in this case, they just get loose and kind of messed up. By now, the German forces knew Lumila by name and actually tried to bribe her to join their side. They promised her an officer rank and... Any guesses on what they promised her to defect? No, what? Chocolate. Yes. They literally tried to bribe her with chocolate. Unfortunately, they bribed her at the wrong time of the month. <laughs> I'm kidding. But, like, it was really rare at the time because it's during the war and everything. Right. But I'm like, guys, come on. Are you fucking kidding <laughs> An me? An officer rank and chocolate. Yes. Wow. You know, she would have done it just for the chocolate. You guys are overplaying your hand here. Ludmila kept fighting until June of 1942. A mortar shell sent shrapnel flying into her face. Due to her fame, the Soviet high command evaluated her by submarine. Evacuated her by submarine. Evaluated her by submarine. That's, I know. I'm like, how, how do you do that? That'd be kind of cool. I'd see that. She had a confirmed 309 kills. Jesus. It took Ludmila a month in the hospital to recover from her injuries. Because she was so valuable to the Soviets as an example of Russian womanhood, they couldn't risk losing her so in they, the they war. They wouldn't send her back, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like the soldiers who did the flag raising on Iwo Jima. They were all evacuated. Actually, a couple of them died and... The U.S. Army was like, we can't fucking let these guys die. It's going to yeah. be this huge morality hit. And one of the surviving members who raised the flag, they, like, the military, he told his friend, like, don't let them know who I am. But they were, they threatened his friend who revealed who he was and he got shipped out. And a bunch of his friends who yeah. obviously had to stay died. And he had a lot of survivor's guilt oh, because I would, of that. I could imagine so instead of sending her back to the front lines, they sent her on a tour of the United States with the goal of building international support for starting a second front against the Germans. That's interesting, considering I've never heard of that. So that was my thing. So the way we've always learned it is that the second that Pearl Harbor happened, we joined the war. We were like, we're in no questions asked. Let's fucking do this. But there was still a lot of hesitation. And so Ludmila's job was to go around the U.S. and be like, you guys need to get into like, we this. We need help. Now. 
The U.S. must have felt like a very strange place to Ludmila. She had been living her life immersed in war, a war that had come knocking at her own door. In the United States, things were calmer, people were fed, and there were a lot fewer bombs falling. This was evident in the types of questions American reporters asked the battle-worn sniper, including, Do you use face powder? Do you curl your hair? Aren't you worried that your uniform makes you look fat? Kelly's face of disgust is everything right now. Is that last <laughs> one actually a question? Yeah, these are actual questions that American reporters asked Ludmila when she came Why here. are we such terrible people? Because she's a woman. Ugh. Like, we haven't changed. No. That's the worst part. When they sent Sally Ride into space, they were like, are 10,000 tampons enough for a week? Or a thousand? I don't know. Like, it was something like that. Yes. <laughs> God, just get her a diva cup, guy. Actually, that may have been really bad. Yeah, that would have been bad. Don't do that. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway. They also called her the Girl Sniper, which isn't as threatening as the nickname she had earned from the Germans, Lady Death. Ludmila didn't have a lot of patience for this bullshit and was criticized by reporters for basically having resting bitch face. A.K.A. She's seen a lot of people die and she's being asked if she thinks she looks fat and she's so done. Thankfully... Ludmila found an ally in this foreign country, and you may have heard of her, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. The two women met early on in, during Ludmila's tour, and she became the first Soviet citizen to be received by a U.S. president, and Eleanor was touched by the young woman's story and felt it was important that more people hear it. To help spread the word, Eleanor arranged a tour of 43 U.S. cities over the summer of 1942. During one of her speeches in Chicago, Ludmila basically called out American men for not supporting the Second Front. She said, quote, Gentlemen, I am 25 years old, and I have killed 309 fascist invaders by now. Don't you think, gentlemen, that you have been hiding behind my back for too long? Which is, oh my god. That's fantastic. I just need to bask in that for a moment. She also spoke of the horrors of war. Quote, I do not believe the American people as a whole entirely understand what war is like. Most of you so far only feel it as an inconvenience, doing without gasoline, being a little limited in the amount of sugar you use. You do not know what it is to have bombs falling all around you. You do not know what it is to see babies murdered, women and girls ravished by Hitlerite beasts. You do not know what it is to find the charred bodies of your own comrades burned and tortured beyond recognition. And trust me, that quote only gets worse. I cut it off because it was bad. Yeah. Like you you can find her whole speech that that quote is taken from and it is rough, but God is it powerful. Her attitude and speeches won many over and crowds flocked to see her. Because she's just this no-nonsense badass. And she's a little sassy, too. Right. Throughout her travels in the United States, Ludmilla became great friends with Eleanor Roosevelt. But after stirring support and raising money for her cause, Ludmilla returned to the Soviet Union. 
While she wouldn't return to the battlefield, Lumila trained other snipers and would be discharged from the Red Army with the rank of Major. In 1943, wow. she was awarded the Gold Star of the Hero of the Soviet Union, as well as the Order of Lenin twice. Wow. That's amazing. After her service, Ludmila returned to school and pursued a career as a historian. So she's just picking up where she left off before the war. She was also active in the Soviet committee, committee, committee of the Veterans of War. The pugs don't like that I mispronounced a really easy word. I'm like, Ludmila Pavlichenko, committee. <laughs> Cannot. All my cognitive powers went into saying Russian stuff. Yep. Or, sorry, she is Ukrainian. Then, 15 years after they had last seen each other, in 1957, Eleanor Roosevelt made a trip to the Soviet Union. This was at the height of the Cold War, when tensions between the U.S. and Soviet Union were high. Because of this, Eleanor's visit was closely monitored and controlled. Despite this, Eleanor was determined to track down her old friend. So they were like... Okay, here's where you're going to go. And she's like, yeah, but I'm also going to go see Ludmila. And they're like, no. And she's like, I'm Eleanor fucking Roosevelt. I'm going to see Ludmila. I do what I want. When Eleanor found her, Ludmila was living a quiet life in Moscow in a modest apartment with her third husband. Life had been difficult for Ludmila since the war. She suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and alcoholism, which I imagine occurred because she was using alcohol to cope with her trauma. Yeah. Because the demons are loud. Eleanor and Ludmila's reunion wasn't what you would have expected. Eleanor was being watched closely by a Soviet miner, and she also had her own, like, guard U.S. representative with her. So it's not like they could let loose and catch up. However, as with many things before, Ludmila was having none of it. She made an excuse to speak with Eleanor in the other room, and the two embraced, laughed, cried, and reminisced about the old days. It would be the last time they saw each other. Aww. So, like, I've seen depictions or read other accounts where she, like, distracted the officials and then pulled Eleanor into another room and they, like, locked the door so the officials couldn't get to them, which her street head canon, that definitely happened. Yeah, oh, yeah. But then they were finally able to be like, oh, my God, do you remember that one time? Remember that other time? Oh, my God, I missed you. It's been so long. She just is having none of the fact that we're in a separate room. Well, she's the Soviet miner who's like, what are you guys doing in there? This is improper. (laughs) Let me in. Let me in. I need to monitor. (laughs) Ludmila may have survived the war. But the damage was done. Her wounds never fully healed, and her alcoholism certainly didn't help. And she died in 1974 at 58 years old. The USSR didn't provide adequate care to veterans, let alone end-of-life programs, and Ludmila's death was painful. Her own daughter-in-law said she swore like a sailor before saying goodbye to her son and died in his arms. And I couldn't find exactly what she died of, but it sounds like... it. It all just was too much, and her body just couldn't deal with it anymore. Legacy. There is a movie about her that came out in 2015 called Battle of Sevastopol. Sevastopol. God, I cannot figure it out. And the trailer looks amazing. It's a Russian-Ukrainian production, so if you don't mind subtitles, you can find it on Amazon Prime. 
Ludmila's memoirs, Lady Death, the memoirs of Stalin Sniper, were just published in English in 2018, and I need this book right now. And for all of you history stamp collectors, Ludmila has two of her own stamps. While some regard Lumila's prowess as being inflated Russian propaganda, perhaps perpetuated by resentment of those with fractional masculinity from within the Soviet army, right. we know this. Ludmila was wounded four times in battle. She struggled with PTSD even as she was touring the U.S. She lost her husband in battle even after she tried to drag him back from the battlefield. She challenged notions of tra- traditional femininity and what women were capable of. Ludmila's words still ring true today. So many Americans still think of war as something going on somewhere a long way off, where Russians and Germans are fighting each other. But we fight for your freedom too. We fight for the freedom of all the countries of Europe, all of the United Nations, and we are fighting alone. This doesn't just apply to war. It's easy to become apathetic to the struggles of others because they feel far away or we don't feel it affects us but we need to care we all need to care and that is ludmila pavlichenko that was a sad ending it was a bummer but the nazis were involved so this yeah, wasn't actually gonna that, be a good yeah, story we that was coming. <laughs> like we say nazis ruin everything everything so kelly what are you thankful for this week um by the time this episode's up we'll have a patreon out yay Yay! yeah please uh find our patreon we'll post more details on social media and we'll talk about it in the beginning of our next episode but please be on the lookout for that we're gonna make don't want to donate or can't because you know money review rate please subscribe subscribe everything it really helps. It costs you nothing. Share it with your friends. And guys, we're going to make it really easy for you to donate to us. We're going to make it really affordable if that's what you can do. One dollar. One dollar. One dollar. One dollar. One dollar. Seriously, if all of our social media followers donated one dollar, we would be fine. One dollar. And we would, we would be have so much wine. Awesome. Oh, so like, much wine. Oh, my God. I there's I would bathe in it. <laughs> I'm gonna bathe in some of this bubbly. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I'm thankful for. Some stuff, stuff getting done, getting her done. How about you? Um, I'm thankful for a lot of things. My dad uh, helped me finish putting up some shelves and cabinets in my laundry room. Aww. He's been extremely helpful since yeah, I got yes. the house. Like that's what he loves to do. I'm also thankful for my uh, my boyfriend's family for welcoming me for their Thanksgiving this weekend, and then Aww. my own family for welcoming welcoming my boyfriend into their home. As they I have mean, many times, say, it's been a lot. It's you guys have been together a long time now. Yeah, so we hit our four years in October, and it's it's one of those things though, like. Me having a good relationship with his family is really important to me, and then him having a good relationship yeah. with my family. I mean, that's, that's how it is for me and Justin, too, and was before he got married. Right. Because my, my father's parents were not super jazzed about my mom, and Jeez. that relationship sucked. So that's something I've always wanted, that good, like, right. big family relationship. Yeah. And I got it, and I'm happy. Good. Yeah. I am also thankful, one more thing. 
my friend, Tierney, who I've mentioned on the podcast before, she was the one who, like, gathered her family to go to that funeral because her uncle suddenly passed away. She is graduating to goddess tier badass because she is pursuing art full time now. And it's a big step. It's a risky step, but she's doing it. And I am so proud of her. So once she gets like her Etsy and all that stuff up, you know, I will give you that information because she makes she makes amazing art, but also really cool jewelry. I'm I'm actually really excited for that because I never have the chance to go to Steam and buy her earrings. So I'm like, hey, if she's on Etsy, that's a lot easier. There is a local holiday like art sale. Tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. That she's going to be at. So we should go. Well, you can I'll still, still go, go with you, but I'm broke AF. <laughs> yeah, because I'm basically buying all of my Christmas presents from her to support her. So nice. You know what? Support small businesses and yeah. small ladies and doing big and things. Just go out there. Be local. Do it. Well, thank you so much again for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Please like us on Facebook and Instagram. And Twitter at W-A-H underscore pod. Uh, Rate and review us five stars wherever you listen. Please. Subscribe. Do whatever the platform allows you. If you listen on Spotify because they don't have a rating system, which I'm still kind of upset about, go to Facebook. Rate us on Facebook. Yeah. Please do. Something. Please. We would appreciate it. Also, if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and and iTunes. iTunes, it's the same thing. I don't know why they try to differentiate. Please rate and review us five stars. It helps get us more listeners and it lets us know that you like what we're doing. Yeah, it's incredible and we love you. We've got a few reviews already and I read them when I'm feeling yeah, really I know, sad. Yeah, I know, same. I did that the other day. Uh, also, email us at whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com if you have any recommendations or you just want to tell us about the cool women in your life or any cool stuff you're doing. Are you going into art full time? Are you a STEM lady? Tell us about it. We want to hear. Yes, yes, we do. Please. And, you know, if you have someone you want us to cover or even just to say their name, let us know and we'll do it. Yes. Also, check out our blog, which has our show notes and some pictures of the lovely women we cover, which is just whiningaboutherstory.com. And I think that's it. So thank you so much for listening. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.